Okay, old Ronnie Scott's joke, quiet and down, you're not here to enjoy yourselves. Hello, welcome to Pod Academy. Today we're at a conference at Birkbeck, University of London, looking at the work of the author Jeff Dyer. Jeff is a multi-award winning writer who has written four novels and is also known for his essays. He's been described by the New York Times as one of our greatest living critics. In this podcast, the author sits down with conference convener Bianca Leggett to talk openly and widely about his work. Before this, we're going to hear from a few of today's speakers telling us why they find Dyer's work interesting and important. But first, here's Jeff Dyer himself at a conference about Jeff Dyer talking about Jeff Dyer. I'm just an incredibly interesting writer. It's really, it's just so, it's just so remarkable. So I hope this will be the start of an annual weekly, not conference, but festival uh, devoted to, to me. And obviously it's been a, a strange thing, and I, I think this will be, it'll sort of be a never-repeated experience for me, actually. It's the only time that I've ever been in any kind of seminar or anything like this where I have been unquestionably the leading authority on the subject. In fact, Jeff Dyer was in good company of experts on Jeff Dyer today. Here's Bianca Leggett on putting the conference together. I am a Jeff Dyer fan and scholar. Uh, I've written about him before, but today uh, is designed to bring forward people who engage with his work in a number of different ways from a different number of different angles. I think one of the things that's unusual about today is it's attracted a lot of um, academics who are also writers who don't see criticism as necessarily secondary. My name is uh, Sripad Joglikar. Uh, I'm assistant professor teaching photography in Kansas State University in the US. I think Dyer features a kind of uh, honest kind of sincerity that even after all this talk regarding Englishness and English character, I feel that uh, it reaches beyond the cultural boundaries and boundaries of time. I'm not Dyer's contemporary in terms of age. I'm not of Dyer's nationality. Uh, but I think uh, the kind of experiences he mentions in his uh, nonfiction as well as fiction, uh, I think I can relate to them way better than some of the Indian authors I've read. And I think that justifies his greatness, uh, being able to cross boundaries across time as well as geography. My name is Elizabeth Minkle, and um, I'm a columnist at The New Statesman and a staff writer at The Millions. You know, I, I think it's interesting because I am coming to this, uh, you know, I've only read one of his books, and he is one of the most important writers to me. And just seeing all the other papers here, you know, I, I use the term transformative work, saying this book was very important to me. It was a turning point in my life. And I really liked that Bianca picked up on that and said, what were your transformative works, talking to the other panelists? And it seems like, I think the sheer breadth of uh, what he writes about and the way he, um, you know, plays with genre and to have such a long and varied career that every single person can have a different transformative work, a different inroad. The fact that I, you know, I can read one of his books and feel like I'm a huge fan and someone else can read all of them and also feel as connected. I just, I think there aren't very many writers out there who have the same 
you know, it's, they're not on that scale. You know, they do the same thing over and over again. So, My name's Joe Brooker. I'm a director of the Centre for Contemporary Literature here in the School of Arts at Birkbeck, University of London. I think over a period of time, he's... Um, done many different things. I think he's been various and diverse and adventurous in what he's done, from uh, writing about John Berger, writing about theories of photography and art, through going into fiction in interesting ways that I'm going to try and touch on in in this paper, but also into kind of uh, works that are between fact and fiction, uh, works that are somewhere between the novel and the essay or or the memoir, and so he's uh, exploring some interesting territory there in a, in a way that is not, um, not always typical of the, the English novel. Also, I think uh, Dyer is, I think in some ways, he's, he's been a very intellectual writer. It's funny because uh, in, in his book, Out of Sheer Rage, he, he rails against academics and theory. But uh, funnily enough, I think by the standards of the English novel, he's also been quite an intellectual novelist. Um, Way back in the first edition of his first novel, The Colour of Memory, uh, the first edition actually included a kind of appendix with bits of critical theory. I think it was at the end of the book, which is something which uh, it's hard to get hold of that now, and perhaps he wouldn't like us to see it. But there's a way in which Dyer's work has engaged with people like Nietzsche, Roland Barthes, and of course uh, John Berger, and uh, ideas in a way that isn't so much traditional of the English novel. I think he inspires love, which is important. It's something that um, gets left out of academia sometimes. And also he is extremely intellectually um, hungry. Um, There is uh, almost no topic that he cannot be entertaining and erudite about, and that is very valuable. That was Bianca Leggett, who we will now hear in conversation with Jeff Dyer. First of all, thank you so much for your generosity throughout all of this process and for um, for being here today. I imagine that there's uh, quite a lot of stress involved as well of turning up to a day about your your work and really looking at it uh, as a whole and hearing um, so many different angles on it. Um, how do you feel about your own work when you look back at it? Can you Do you read your own novels or does that make you uh, feel a little peculiar? Well, I'm not. Uh, I'm not much of a re-reader of of, of my uh, of my books, and I only was only re-reading *The Color of Memory* because, um, you know, because it was being reissued and there was no digital file. <coughs> yeah, I tend not to be sort of looking back uh, so much on, on stuff like that. But I mean, one of the de- things for me today has been really stimulating for me in that uh, despite being you know the leading authority on my work there were all sorts of things that um, you know that I was oh yeah that's that's there so for example I mean Joe's point about the the moment you know uh, and being in the moment and you know this nice sort of description of this sort of discussion that he went into about how long that moment extends um, that was, you know, I, that, you know I, that, I thought that was really impressive. And then, weirdly, I mean, Jonathan some time ago had done this thing, which was really, the, it's the, the thing that's been published about me that I've most enjoyed, about repetition in my work. And, you know, so it was slightly cheeky, in a way, pointing out all these ways in which I've repeated myself. 
But then with that bit Joe read out, that description of the, the pause thing and somebody catching a ball, which I'd completely forgotten about, and then I realized, oh Lord, you know, there's a, there's a bit in, you know, in, in uh, Death in Varanasi where um, somebody catches a ball and, you know, that moment is preserved. Uh, and then I really, I'd forgotten this. I wrote this thing recently about a group of friends in this idyllic time, this idyllic moment that I wanted to preserve on uh, Cape Canaveral Beach. And there we all are all clowning around in the surf. And as ever, there's a bit of sort of, you know, boy-girl attraction going on. And it all comes around a game of catch. And the sort of climactic moment is when the sort of love interest in this story, she catches the ball. It's kind it's of... in uh, yoga as well. It's in... That's, that's right. I'd for, you see, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it's funny. Uh, now, we, one could cynically sort of say that there's some of the things, you know, you could say, oh, it's just, you know, if, if I repeat the same sentence, that's just recycling and weariness. On the other hand, the same things keep coming up in writers' work, and especially in fiction. One of the interesting things about fiction is the way that it just really brings you up against, you know, this weird thing of your... You just come back to the same stuff. And I think that notion of the of the sort of that 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 catching moment of the there's a sort of perfection in it and also as I've written elsewhere one of the things that strikes me it's one of the most it's not absolutely unphotographable but it's very difficult to photograph a catch because of the way the removal of time you know unless it's in those rare things where like in a cricket match somebody it generally it just looks like what are they doing where they're, they're holding a ball because you can only convey a catch right. in the sense of, of a narrative. Right, so I suppose that's something which is outside of photography, something that writing can do which photography can't, that, that dynamic moment. That's yeah, that thing of the, the narrative. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so it was, yeah, so there's been all sorts of uh, stuff that I, it's all sorts of recurrences yeah. that I've been made aware of. And then equally, there are, other things that I felt sure were wrong. Now, I can't remember <laughs> who was saying that about this thing of the, my relationship to a group being both an ins sort of inside the group and sort of outside. Now, of course, this was very different this day because I was there as a, as a guest. So, of course, I was the odd man out in, in, a, in the company of 5,000 military people. But I think generally, actually, the involvement is is pretty total and one of the things in the colour of memory is there's absolutely nothing about anybody's class or educational background. We don't hear anything really about their backstories. They're just there in this place where they feel like they belong and they're in this group of friends and I've you know, I, it's been one of always one of the sources of happiness happiness in my life, a sense of belonging. Yeah. And I think it's that only child thing. So I've always loved being in a group of Well, friends. yeah, I think you write friendship very well. And friendship oh, is something which is often neglected for this sort of romantic dynamic. But those moments of the formation of friendship, that, and we talked about that as a game of keepy-uppy as well, again, the, yes, the sport yeah. metaphors. Um, but there are sometimes moments of a, of a splitting apart. I'm thinking of Paris <coughs> Trance uh, and its relationship to women in love that... Uh, your, your character becomes sort of a recluse at the end. There's this perfect moment, again, like one of these frozen moments where the ball is in the air, where everyone is throwing and catching, and then sometimes a, 
um, a, a character who gets taken off into the periphery. And that interesting moment we were talking about in Jeff in Venice, Death in Baranasi, where your narrator is left wading around the Ganges, inventing a god named Ganuna, who, uh, uh-huh. a kangaroo. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have a, another, another character who is very much a, a, a joiner in as someone who enjoys friendship, but who ends up, uh, it's, you sort of explore this periphery. Um. Jeez, you're right. Actually, whoever made, I now take back my <laughs> refutation of what you were saying. I see in a different way, it does crop up quite a bit. Typically, there's a temporal, the distancing there is temporal. It's mm. somebody looking back on a time that, when there was that, mm. that com- complete belonging. And I guess I should, you know, when we're talking about peak experiences, and you know, it remains the thing in my life that I'm most proud of, you know, the, the, the thing that I'm most glad to have done, which is that between the years of 19, uh, 1999 and 2005, you know, I went to the Burning Man Festival. You know, that ultimate thing of, um, of a, a momentary thing, this city that comes to exist only for a week. And, you know, it's a big thing of the plan of the city, which is that it's like a kind of, um, it's, uh, have you got any of a marker pen? We haven't, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so the city is, uh, it's, you know, built in the desert and on the hands of a clock face. It's not a complete circle, it's just from uh, 10 o'clock till 2 o'clock, the radial plan of the city. And at the same way, on the last day of the festival, uh, the sculpture of the man in the middle of the thing, his arms are raised like that. And what Larry Harvey, the, you know, the founder of it, said, it was really important that the city is not closed like that. And we've still got that welcoming gesture that people can still come into that circle. So I, uh, uh, you know, I think that's, that's really quite, uh, that's, that's sort of, there are versions of that um, in Paris trance. You know, the person becomes, you know, that Luke character becomes really happy when he finds himself in a, the midst of a group of friends, uh, you know, in, in Paris. That's when he starts feeling that he properly belongs there. Well, shifting this question of inside, outside to something uh, more um, uh, in terms of how we categorise your writing. Um, I mean, academia is is its own closed world in the sense that it doesn't leave a, uh, a slice of that um, 360 degrees open or, or perhaps does I mean I know your own trajectory as a writer you know we've talked about your work on Berger at the beginning that you've very much left behind and uh, now we've managed to uh, get you in our clutches just for a little while um, how do you see your relationship to the academic world at different stages of your writing have you mellowed towards us or have we changed <laughs> or neither Can I get, if this was taking place at my old Oxford College, I feel sure this would be a prelude to being asked to make a major donation. Mm. <laughs> well, I was always, going to... Uh, yeah. they're, always, they're always calling me up asking for money, you know. Um, and I think they do that just partly to... They, don't, they do it partly to make you feel that you're successful. You know, irrespective of what they've done, they're going to put the hit on you. But they, you know, anyway. But I always make clear they've really got the wrong number because I feel... Anyway, so that's... Uh, well, um... <laughs> Do you know, I guess the, the thing for me, really, that the, the sort of one of the crucial things was, you know, like, as is so, it's so common, and I, I emphasize this part of my life only because it's so common, not because my experience of it is interesting at all, but mine was the classic, you know, working class thing whereby, you know, no books at home, parents no interest in reading or writing, 
teacher at school makes me fall in love with literature. So there's the transformative thing in my life. Then go to college, and it was made so plain to me at this, uh, you know, that really teaching was an irritating intrusion on my teacher's time. So it was a sort of, and it was all less, it just didn't have that. It was, of course, it was great being at you know, university and, and all of this kind of stuff. But there was such a sort of, I just felt it was so disappointing in a way in terms of both the enthusiasm brought to the teaching and the way we were steered towards stuff. So uh, was it Amitava who mentioned that, you know, that really uh, coming randomly across that Roy Fuller uh, poem? Um, so, I mean, yeah, that was, that was the kind of uh, disillusioning of, uh, of academia. And then I guess my other... It's not even a gripe, but I felt that my own trajectory was so opposed to the um, to the standard path of of education in England, which is or Britain is always maybe all over the world moving towards finer and finer specialism. You know, eight O levels, three A levels, single degree, and then you know I've been so rude about the idea of the PhD in in the past, and. You know, it was after I left university, I discovered this idea of this kind of actually going in the completely opposite direction. This was the confidence Berger gave me of being, um, being able to actually write about pretty well everything. The paradox is that that ability to learn about all sorts of other subjects, where did that come from? It came, uh, it came exactly from the educational experience of being that Oxford way of, uh, of uh, being taught. I not being taught, whereby you see your tutor once a week and then you find out everything else for yourself. So in a way, I've never seen why anybody ever wants to go to night school except to kind of get a girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, for the sort of uh, social or sexual opportunities. But yeah, that that system of, of uh, you know, it meant those three years at Oxford meant I could just go on self-educating myself for, for, for forever like that. And then in terms of how do I have I come to, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I just feel so sort of happy, really, and pleased to be, um, to be, uh, to be getting some sort of, you know, that, to get some sort of attention from academia. And it makes me think after I was so rude about <laughs> academics and out of sheer rage, I mean, I realised that, if anything, I'd misunderstood the masochistic tendencies of academia. <laughs> Great. So, you, you, uh, as you've mentioned, you've moved from so many different subjects throughout your uh, writing career. Is there, a, is there a grand plan or just a curiosity that keeps drawing you uh, from one to another? Yeah, there's certainly not been a, a grand plan. I mean, that's the reason I've ended up writing so many books about so many different things is precisely because there was no grand plan and if because nobody would you know uh, this is so exactly how you don't go about establishing a successful literary career or a brand I mean we, we know that you know it's really um, and I think again this was something that I can't remember now who was saying this but um, you know there was a um, it it was so ill-advised the way I went about things that it was really about five or six books in before there was any sort of sense of this of this kind of uh, of this body of work. And weirdly, in terms of I think can't remember was it Joe again who was talking about the relative, you know, the way I was oh yeah about being taught in in universities. I think I've actually 
ended up with a sort of better being more recognized here as a result of my reputation being imported back in from America. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because there was this lag in uh, the books being published in America, you know, so for example, the, the jazz book didn't come out for year, for years. I mean, and, you know, for years I just, as Mike talked about this before, but my girlfriend said, all you do is sit in your room and seethe. And I, I did just seethe. That... Anyway, by the time the books came out in America, they were, um, instead of coming out sort of incrementally, there was suddenly quite a lot of them. And they, 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 there was then this awareness of this sort of body of work, which, and then that sort of didn't actually alert people here in England to, to them, but it sort, of, it sort of, they were the first to do it. And I guess also I had, not only had I diluted the brand, as it were, by writing so many different kinds of books, but I'd done a, a number of, Americans weren't aware of just how much sort of jobbing, day-to-day -day journalistic stuff I was doing. Yeah. So, you know, in a way, I mean, I think I harmed my chances of being taken seriously by the way that, you know, I'd be sitting at home and, you know, the Guardian would call up and say, you know, do you fancy writing 500 words on picking your nose by tomorrow morning? And since at that point my finger probably was up my nose, I remember thinking, oh yeah, you know, so... <laughs> That, there was that kind of, there was a lot of that kind of stuff as well. Well, it must have breed a certain uh, flexibility, giving all these uh, different topics and uh, chasing them down. I mean, you're, you're a writer who talks a lot about procrastination and uh, about the frustrations of writing, and yet you seem suspiciously prolific, I would say, uh, considering that. Do you, uh, do you find it difficult to sit down and write what you need to write, or is that... Uh, um, at this stage in your career, do you feel that you've somehow mastered your own um, your own um, peccadilloes as a, a procrastinator? Um, well, I mean, I mean, I actually find it more difficult to sit down now than ever. I mean, one of the things was that at, at school we'd be given essays to write over the Christmas holiday. What a downer! And I always used to do that essay either on the Friday night after school or on Saturday morning. Not because I was so diligent, but because I dreaded it hanging over me so much that I just wanted it out of the way. So in a weird sense, my self-discipline was at its peak at, um, you know, at the age of 17 or whatever. Um, but um, I guess, you know, obviously I, I do have some kind of... I think in a weird way, the absolute lack of any kind of uh, recognition and certainly the absolute lack of sales was a really, really good thing for me because it meant that I was never never under any of that alleged pressure that s publishers might have subjected one to, uh, that might have they, they might subject writers to if they've done a particular kind of book and then the stakes are so high. For me, actually, it was all just, it was all just at such a sort of, you know, nickel and dime kind of level. It didn't, the, the drop in audience from a... a book a novel like The Search, which was a total flop, to a little funny little sort of book-length essay about the First World War, that was, it just, it was, uh, you know, there, there were so many advantages to, to that, uh, I, I, I see now. So, uh, um, you know, the, the freedom from any kind of audience was a really, was a really, really great thing. I've managed and to yet you have accumulated this audience. Yeah, it's, That's it's, a, it's, it's a great it's, trick it's if you can... Uh, you Could can I say something else about this technique thing? It occurs to me that this 
the, the Lawrence, and it's something I'm really noticing in America now, this kind of, um, this kind of, uh, in the creative non-fiction realm. And I'm one of these people who seems to have licensed this kind of, okay, you're meant to be writing about a book, but I'm just going to write about uh, how I got stoned for two weeks before getting, you know, that kind of stuff. And it seems to me that that way of approaching things is only works for a, for a, for certain subjects. I wasn't even entirely sure, uh, James, actually, that it worked for that Laurent, Laurent Binet HHH book. I actually thought, shit, I'd rather just read a, a book about Heydrich, actually, yeah. you know, a straightforward down-the-line history book. So I think it only works with certain subjects, and the justification for all that uh, telling about what other stuff you've done is really if it ends up leading you into a, uh, uh, a deeper appreciation of the subject under discussion that then could have been uh, attained in a more, more direct way. Especially, you know, when it's in it, when I, I, you know, I've come across this a lot when I was teaching in Iowa, you know, these sort of, uh, yeah, it's, of course, these 20-year-old, 21-year-olds have a, you know, they'd love to just spend a load of time writing about uh, how they got stoned and didn't write the essay they were meant to write kind of thing. So it, it's, it comes with a slight sort of, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's like those legal highs, you know, you've got to, you know, it's, some of them can really get you messed up and it's a good thing if, if they're, if they're, if they're, you know, if they are, if they do end up being proscribed, proscribed with an O, not an E. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, thinking about um, fiction and, and non-fiction and uh, creative criticism we've been talking about today, do you feel more of a pull towards non-fiction uh, recently? Are you part of this sort of moment of reality hunger, or is this just where your writing's been taking you recently? Well, yeah, I mean, I've always, I'm, uh, I'm, I mean, you know, fiction-wise, I've always, I've got this, you know, really unusually wide range of books you know that's not that's not that's not me blowing my own trumpet that's just me stating a fact but i'm always struck by the fiction how you know how the fiction is all the same really and it's always the same it's a group of friends uh and you know uh at a party or something see across the woman uh, see across the room woman with long black hair in a dress and it's funny sometimes i sort of think Maybe I should change it. Maybe I should say, you know, woman with blonde hair. But no, there's something, I feel it's... And, you know, I've just written this story about set in Beijing with this, you know, uh, and it's, uh, God, it's the, that's what I'm drawn to. It's, it really is so, so limited, that early days of, uh, early stages of romance, this kind of stuff. And that's, you know, there are a few variants on it, but that is, that is it. So as a fiction writer, uh, you know, I, there'll be a few more versions of that. Probably increasingly <laughs> embarrassing as I get. You know, there was that great bit. Um, what's his name? Uh, what's his name? Who's the author? Who's that? Who's the? Um, geez, the the Danish film director, Von Trier. Oh. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's right. When he was somebody said to him, you know, now don't become one of these film directors as they get older who spend more and more time photographing naked young women. And at that point, he decided to make nymphomania. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, there's probably going to be an increasing, there's going to be some increasingly embarrassing stuff 
like that. But I think I've got a much more longevity as a as a essayist um, and uh, a, a, a writer of non-fiction mm. than I than I do as a, as a fiction writer actually. And in your work with uh, Iowa University, are you teaching writing or you're teaching reading? Is this your oh, yeah. criticism? Um, yeah, Iowa was both, I was both doing a workshop in, um, uh, it was, what was it? It was a workshop in the essay. Great, I was really happy to do that, but they all wanted to write memoirs, it turned out. Okay. You know? And then I was doing a reading course, which I was much happier doing. And it was one of these courses where each week we'd study a non-fiction book that I quite liked. And uh, one of the students made a comment that I liked so much. She said, "You know, this this isn't this isn't really a course. It's just a it's just a book group." Great. <laughs> and it sort of was. It was just miscellaneous books that I liked, and I'd sort of say, "Oh, I like this bit." And, you, know, it's, uh, you know, really. But it was, you know, the pedagogically, um, I was right down there with the laziest kind of Oxford tutor. But I feel a hundred percent. I know it's a fact. I turned these people on to all sorts of books that they would never have come across in the normal run of things. So, what sort of thing? Who are you reading at the moment? Who excites you? Well, the you know, my, as uh, God, I know who was saying this. Who was talking about my latest crush? Annie, Annie. There's the Annie Dillard thing, which is you know, Annie Dillard is one of the great writers of our time. But actually, as a reader now, you know, where I'm at as a reader, I certainly don't read this kind of stuff that I do, I read big, fat, straight-down-the-line history books. You know, I'm always reading thousand-page history books, the kind of things that take people, you know, ten years to write, and, you know, so, yeah, that's, what I, that's where I am as a, as a reader. Um, and in some weird way, that would, I'd like to be the kind of, I'd like to be doing that. I'd like to be going home tonight and waking up tomorrow knowing I'm at page 400 of a, but it's not, I know I could never write a book like that. I couldn't, I don't have the, I don't have the patience, I don't have the ability to, to do all the archive stuff. It's just not, not me. Um, so you're in the States now. You've, uh, you've, you've left us for a little bit, but we've, we've tempted you, you back for a little while. Um, what do you think about uh, the sort of American literary academic scene compared to the British? Does it, uh, as a writer, does it feel like you're in a different environment over there well I mean just I, better weather yeah well the weather is is, is and donuts. yeah there's all of that but I mean the the key thing about American writing and I you know I was one of these fiction wise it was always um, I got you know when I got into reading I started reading American writers and again I can't remember who was saying this I feel it's been a really key part of my formation that I never read these people like Evelyn War of course I did later on because my friend William Sutcliffe said incredibly that Evelyn Waugh was his favourite writer. So I then read Evelyn Waugh, didn't sort of like it very much. And I, uh, I, and the other name that's kept coming up, you know, early on as a protest, I decided I would never read Kingsley Amis because I thought, I, you know, the way he was always saying, oh, I'm not going to read these people like Saul Bellow or whatever. So I've never read a line of Kingsley Amis, even though all sorts of people uh, tell me that Lucky Jim is really funny. But I just didn't, that English stuff was not part of my formation at all. Instead, I was reading Kerouac, Joseph Heller, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, but the crucial thing about American universities is that virtually every American writer, even the most renegade, badass, bad boy, outlaw ones, they've all gone, they tend to have gone through some sort of writing program. I guess the 
Updike is the great exception. Um, and so that, that thing of the writing program has always sat within the kind of, no, not within, at some sort of nice adjacency to the literature program. And that's been a great place for, for writers to be. My God, it's provided them an incredible financial sort of security. So they haven't all the time been thinking, oh yeah, I'll write, I'll bang out 500 words on nose picking. You know, they've devoted themselves much more to, to this kind, you know, to their, to their real work. That's had two effects. I'm really conscious of this. Firstly, and I've really seen this, you know, it goes back to that old Martin Amis line when he says, um, you know, uh, in America, when a writer becomes successful, uh, it changes their lives. In English, in England, when you become successful, you buy yourself a new filing cabinet. You know, in America, you can, on the basis of one very thin book of short stories, published by uh, a really quite small press, you can live off that quite happily for 10 years because you'll then get other sort of writer-in-residence gigs and uh, all sorts of uh, awards and this kind of stuff. Uh, whereas in Britain, you would just starve. And so that means two things. It means that typically after some sort of book like, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Juno Diaz, I think, you know, after Drown, was it called Drown, that book? You know, then I think that book of short stories, highly regarded, all sorts of things came his way. And then after a long pause, well, it comes out with a big, big, big old novel. That's one way of going. On the other hand, it can mean that actually after 10 years, what have you got to show for yourself? Oh, still just that book of short stories that you've been dining out on. So it's, you know, but really, um, given the, the sort of high quality of, of, you know, of writing in America since the Second World War, you know, that's mo most of the, I don't know, the, some huge percentage of the fiction I've been most interested in since the Second World War has come out of America. Uh, and that model has worked. And of course now we've, in, in spite of some of those sort of old duffers saying, you can't teach creative writing, you know, now actually, you know, there's, you know, creative writing, there's some sort of creative writing thing going on everywhere uh, here. But actually I think it's, there are other factors that come into to, to play that mean that, you know, about this American fiction thing, but that's a different issue. But I would say also that the times that I've spent, this is the other reason, the other discussion about, you know, have I changed my mind about academia? Um, the teaching gigs I've had in America, I found them really, really stimulating uh, because I've reached the age now, you know, when I realized just how special that period is in people's lives between having finished their undergraduate degree, that period from about 21 to your, to say 30, when you're just, you know, when you're just absorbing all sorts of stuff and there's a kind of incredible purity to your, to one's ambition. And it's just, it's great to be, it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, what are my motives for teaching? To be honest, they're not that altruistic. I'm in it for me. And I I've, I've, was aware when I was in Iowa that I was being really rejuvenated by, by proximity to these kids. So I like that essentially sort of parasitic, vampiric relationship that I, that I have with them. Oh, plus I get paid too. Excellent. Um, well, I think um, just one last question. We, we've had this uh, etiquette problem throughout the day of when we're speaking about Daya and when we're speaking <laughs> about Jeff and when we're speaking about Jeff with a J when we're talking mm. about Jeff in, uh, uh, in Venice, death in Varanasi. Um, how, how much of a gap is there between 
you and your writing persona, I suppose this isn't a question, you'd have to take this perhaps book by book. Do you find yourself when you sit down to write adopting a different persona or are you just channeling a part of yourself? Uh, it depends. It's the there's a uh, was it Jonathan saying about the similarity between the the spoken voice and the the written word. You know, there's a it it depends. But uh, you know, it was um, I'm kind of I, I I guess the way I could answer this is somebody asked me when Paris Trance came out. They said you know there's all this sort of sexual goings on there. So they said something like is that just fantasies or is that from real life? I remember saying, you're asking me, I'm kind of 45, you're asking, you know, is that stuff just fantasy at my age, you know? What a sad life I'd have had if... Uh... Well... So, it's, um, no, it's, uh, it, there's, a, there's a lot of traffic between the, the, the real and, the, and the, the invented. But the key thing is you never, it's like that, I mean, I'll just illustrate it a bit, that scene in yoga for people who can't be bothered to do it where he gets there on they're taking mushrooms in Amsterdam goes into the toilet to uh, change out of the trousers mm. and is so out of it that you know people love that scene it's a great bit of sort of stoner slapstick and it comes as a great disappointment in the Q&A after the reading when I say oh that never happened to me that was an anecdote that I heard somebody tell about being in a porta potty in the Glastonbury festival mm. the key thing of course is that you can't tell where the drawing is because I have been to Amsterdam and I've been to the Van Gogh Museum the key thing is that there's no that the mending is so invisible that enables me to stitch somebody else's uh, anecdote into my into my own life um, in the reading this is touching on something that's been brought up during the during the day about Englishness and during the and Americanisms and during the reading that you gave the two little bits. We had whooped pup and plenty is the intensifier, as Bianca said, and guys, which everyone uses these days, and uh, a couple dozen. Mm. How aware of that are you? And we didn't, no one came up with a definitive thought about Englishness and Jeff Dyer, but is that something that you feel is important to uh, an understanding of your writing? Yeah, you know, I think it's quite Americanized because uh, it, it, it is the, the stuff that I like. But this weird thing happened, I think, with the Tarkovsky book, which originated in, in America. They were doing the production of it. And they went through it and they re-punctuated it and re-spelt it to put it in America. In America. And those are only cosmetic differences. They weren't changing the words. And just weirdly, suddenly it didn't... It did, didn't seem like me, and I said, "No, you've got to change it all back." Um, and to that extent, I realised, in spite of using these words, this kind of stuff, at the kind of at that weird, you know, where is a writer's DNA manifest? Where do you find it? You sort of find it in the punctuation. Weirdly, uh, you know, I realised, God, that really is, you know, yeah, I'm an English writer like that, and I'm writing, you know, an Americanized version of English. Yeah. Uh, certainly not not the other way round, but I. But I feel a lot of the energy in the writing comes from uh, comes from uh, from America. And in terms of that English question, which I thought was so so interesting, you know, Lawrence is so important in this, and you know, it's so great. You know, it's great line. You know, yeah, English, English, even in the te in the teeth of England, um, which I I, I like that uh, very very much. But I think also that lady who's left now, I like the I'd, I'd be on in the debate she was having with her 
friend or husband or boyfriend or whatever about how English I was. Yeah, I feel I'm a kind of un unusual English writer because I feel the typical English writer is much more of a straight-down-the-line novelist. You know, that's what being a writer sort of in, in England means. And I felt, feel there's a, you know, I've absorbed all that sort of uh, European Roland, you know, Bartesian ideas of, of being a writer which have been in, important to me. Um, but I guess I should say in relation to that, you see, when I fell in love with Roland Barthes and, of course, started to try to write Bartesian, you know, not trying to, I just, you know, was writing this, there would always be this, it would always end up seeming like me. So, you know, I'm from Gloucestershire, so my Roland Barthes stuff, it would always come out like Roland Barthes in a slight Gloucestershire accent. So it, it, there was this weird thing whereby there was a sort of me, my voice there that, uh, you know, that is, is the product both of that, that you know, that, 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 you know, there's that with all this, but infusions of Bart and DeLillo and whoever else, yeah. Uh, yes, ma'am. Um, the next question was from a self-proclaimed enthusiast who feels a great sense of nostalgia from Dyer's writing, particularly Paris Trance and Colours of Memory, so much so that she confuses her own memories with some passages from the book. She asked if Dyer sees himself as a nostalgic person. Oh, yeah, I can answer that question uh, really, really accurately. Uh, it's one of the things I have in common with John Berger, actually. Neither of us have a nostalgic bone in our bodies. I have no nostalgia at all, but I think in the books there is, and I think because of that, there's often a very elegiac quality to them. And now, uh, you know, it's what I think it's always interesting, these words which share a close proximity but which aren't the same. And in the same way, I feel that, uh, for example, you know, uh, I'm a very obsessive person, but I'm, I don't have an addictive, I'm not at all addictive. Uh, I, you know, it's, so it's funny that kind of, it's strange that thing. And the, the sense of elegy, I think that maybe it would be this with elegy, that the thing about nostalgia is that it only kicks in later. Whereas I think there can be, you can have a sense of, elegi of the elegy actually in the moment. I'm just, uh, I'm sort of making this up as I go. I'm just, you know, this is just my thoughts. And I think that's, that might be what's going on. So that, Joe is so right again to emphasise the moment and its, and its passing. And that also, yeah, so that would be my answer to that. Yeah, no nostalgia. And this thing, the title of the, the Colour of Memory, it came from an essay I wanted to write, which was going to be called Super 8 and the Colour of Memory. And it seems to me that, uh, again, going, uh, going back to Morgan's point, uh, but it was something that maybe Jonathan then said, it's certainly our sense of what the colour of an era is, is so bound up with the technology by which that era tends to be recorded. So that those you know those years of super eight footage with that strange sort of turquoiseization of the sky, that is so that is that has really coloured our sense of what any given uh, what any given epoch is like. And wow, you look at you know that nothing, nothing has quite the elegiac feel on um, of uh, uh, on film of of super eight. I think it's quite in there's a great book just being published by Alex and Rebecca Norris Webb 
called Memory City, which is about Rochester in upstate New York, where Kodak had been for ages, and that Kodak has, you know, they went bust, and you can't get Kodak anymore. So that's the colour of an era coming coming to an end. Uh, their book, it's not nostalgia, it's not, it, it really is, it's an elegy for Kodachrome, which, geez, has been so important for Alex Webb. He's got tons of it still, but they won't process it anymore. Huh. So yeah, that's, uh, sorry, that was a sort of technological uh, footnote to your to your question. Uh, yes, ma'am. Um, I just to, to return back to uh, some of the discussion of Americanness and, and Britishness. Um, I suppose I was going to ask sort of to what extent you noticed American sensibility in your writing, but we sort of talked about that. Um, but I suppose um, when you were just reading the excerpts from your book, which uh, I haven't read in full yet. Um, to me, the, the passages seemed, uh, the style was, seemed expressly all the more British, I think, because it's reflecting on an American oh. landscape. And I've read a number of other books, like things like The Ongoing Moment, and things that discuss other sort of non-fiction topics, and those never struck me as having a particularly um, sort of British tone to them in the mm -hmm. way they were presented. But I think there's something, I mean, there's been talk about today a lot about um, the way in which you've taken a much more like, sensitive approach to your subjects, or at least a bit less um, kind of instinctively mocking in that uh, mm. traditional British uh, approach to American culture. Um, but I, to me, there's something, I mean, I found this just incredibly funny, the two passages you read. Um, I mean, perhaps as an American also, who's been sort of anglicized in the past few years. And in a way, I think something about the British sensibility really lends itself to giving this almost innate kind of uh, ironic um, mm -hmm. criticism of the of American society and a kind of situation like this, which is so intrinsically American. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I, this, I think, to me, it seems almost as if if you, if you had written this and published as a fiction book, it would seem almost more alongside kind of Evelyn Waugh to say, mm -hmm. those passages sound like something you couldn't even make up, you know, the speech mm -hmm. by uh, um, Stonewall, you know, the names. And so I, I suppose I'm wondering to what extent you were conscious of the comedy value sort of in what you were writing, or whether that's something that comes sort of innately in the British style of sort of irony and mm. the style itself that the comedy seems to be sort of ingrained in almost in the way you describe things and yourself in relation to its self-deprecating nature of British humor. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it's, it, this is interesting. Well, the comedy stuff, I mean, the comedy is, you know, I have to, you know, in a sense I'm in this for me, so I have to have fun when I'm writing. So. You know, I like it when I see the opportunity for a gag emerging, or, you know, I, I, of course I like that kind of stuff. Um, and in a weird way, I mean, I kind of really, I kind of, I sometimes, it's funny this, I, I'm sometimes, as is always the case with any kind of extreme position, I'm tempted to, I know that in real life, for example, I can't be in the company without, of somebody without a sense of humour for more than five minutes without being bored stiff. You know, that's just it, you know. And then I sometimes want to extrapolate from that and sort of say something like, anyone who doesn't have a sense of humour is stupid. And I think that for a moment. And then I have to, of course, think of Susan Sontag, famously humourless, and therefore a brilliant subject for that incredibly funny book by the author of The Professor, whose name I'm now blanking. Terry, Terry something. Eagleton. Eagleton? No, no, no. Castle. Terry Castle. Terry Castle. Castle. You know, one of the funniest things ever written, I think. So... Uh, but yeah, but Sontag, no sense of humour, incredibly clever. So of course I, I pushed them, put that to one side. 
uh, I have to, you know, I always bear in mind as well, you know, funny is not the opposite. I think it's even, God, this is embarrassing. I'm now going to quote David Sedaris. Uh, you know, he said something really important. You know, let's bear in mind, funny is not the opposite of serious. Funny is the opposite of unfunny. You can be uh, incredibly funny at the same time as being serious, this kind of stuff. No, this, I mean, this is so close to my heart, this kind of stuff. I'll just sort of whiz quickly through some of these things. Uh, I've never ever written satire, and I've said this before on occasions, when Jeff in Venice came out and people described it as a satire of the art world, I was really amazed by that because I thought it was just my description of a good time. It wasn't intended to be a satire at all. I feel it's a point of honour when I'm writing stuff that nobody in any situation should come out looking worse than either my representative or the narrator or me or that kind of stuff. But the crucial thing about it as well, uh, and I, you know, I'm speaking of, I've just read that, I read half of that dreadful new Edward St. Auburn book. You know, that's what a satire is. You know, that's just this sort of piss take. The satire has to be so precise if it's going to work. And... You know, I feel that, uh, you know, that, that book in particular is, it just hasn't got any precision at all. It's so broad. But in, in my case, I mean, I feel that what I so don't want, I wouldn't want that English, that English, uh, that justly sort of famous English skill at taking the piss and uh, all of that sort of stuff and of making sarcastic remarks and pointing out the bad side of things, which I kind of love. I love all that pub bantering and stuff. I only want that, though, if it's going to be a way of enabling me to say other stuff too. And God knows I would hate it if that really acted as, a, as something which was inhibiting my ability to feel, you know, uh, to have access to the transcendental, the sublime, the moving. And, you know, I keep coming back again and again, you know, to that line of, you know, of my, you know that great, my great the person I feel is my brother, you know, Camus. When he says, you know, I realised that I couldn't, you know, without satisfying those two thirsts without which life shrivels. I mean loving and admiring. And, you know, if, I mean, if, I don't want, so I don't want to do anything that is, uh, you know, inhibiting my ability to, to feel that stuff. And in relation to that, you know, I realised in the course of writing the Tarkovsky book, that yeah, you can. What you can do though is you can kick reverence out of the window. There is no need ever for reverence. Reverence is just a pretty. I don't ever. I have no need to revere anything. Uh, I have a great appetite for admiration and love and for criticizing. And I was aware that revering was used to to revere something is almost by definition to bring no no critical tools. You know, it's just as a critical tool, it's worthless. You know, what can you do with that you revere except revere it until eventually, ten years on, you decide you hate it? <laughs> anyway, sorry, John, I saw your hand was up. Yeah, too. Um, you, you may have already talked about this while I nipped out and do a bit of shopping, in which case... God, that must have been quite a bit of shopping. You were gone for four hours. Accusing <laughs> waitress, what can I say? Um, so if you have, then you could ignore this, but I wonder if you could say something about the importance of photography and the relationship you feel maybe between photography and the rest of your writing? Yeah, well, I became interested in photography through other people's writing. Through the, I became interested in photography not through looking at pictures, but through reading Berger, Sontag and Barthes. 
Um, and then I became uh, interested in photographs, uh, really for enabling me, for their content, for enabling me to get some sort of narrative out of them. So the pictures of jazz musicians were really helpful to me writing But, but Beautiful, but only for what they revealed of, you know, uh, of the jazz musicians. And then gradually I became more conscious of the people who took the pictures, the photographers. And then the whole thing became much more interesting, this sort of thing about the extent to which, you know, um, uh, you know what defines a photograph? Is it what it's of or who it's by? And so I ended up writing that book, The Ongoing Moments, to really, to really become, in order to become, you know, really quite knowledgeable in the field of photography. And it's funny, I mean, now I seem to be spending about sort of 80% of my writing time writing about photography. Um, because, I mean, for several reasons, it's so incredibly interesting. I mean, it's just so interesting. Partly, it's partly interesting because we, could all, we can all take photographs. You know, anyone can do it. But that thing about the great photographs, the great photographers. Uh, and also, uh, you know, when I finished the jazz book, I lost interest in jazz. But that's partly because from then on, that, that would have been a silly form of music to have been interested in the 1990s, really, when, you know, in the 1990s, you know, electronic music is where the action was, you know. Of course it was, you know, much more. But photography, there's so much going on in photography now in this kind of, in the absolute dying, you know, the dying era of analogue photography in a way, you know, uh, and the, this whole sort of digital thing, which were only, is only yeah, so... Um, yeah, photography is so incredibly, it, it's not so much now that my writing is being informed by photography, I'm just writing about photography the whole time. More interesting than picking your nose. Uh, yes, and more profitable too, it turns <laughs> out. Yeah. Last question. Yeah, okay, so Tom, you're in the fortunate position of asking the, the, the last question. Um, do you... Do you know much, or do you feel any, if you do know much, do you feel any sense of kinship with Jeremy Della, um, the artist? Oh. I was thinking about sort of a few of these questions have kind of bounced up. Uh, I mean, you know, what you're just talking about, kind of rave culture, uh, and sort of nostalgia, Englishness, uh, but treated in a kind of gentle way. But also, I mean, the thing that originally sort of... Um, Spawn this question was it uh, your kind of um, Stonewall speech? Um, it is what it is. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Because Della towards this um, made a work called It Is What It Is, which he taught. Do you know about this? No. He toured, uh, he kind of went and found a, a sort of destroyed car from a uh, market in Baghdad, I think. And uh, he took this on a tour of the US, sort of just called It Is What It Is. And he was, Accompanied by a, I think a U.S. serviceman, maybe a journalist or a photographer or something, and uh, it was just sort of parked there on a truck. People would come up and say, "What's that?" And then they'd have this sort of interaction with a soldier, and the where the other person was, and it just you know you were repeating this. It is what it is, right? How and funny. That, that I think that work. I think Bella doesn't really sort of get that involved in that, but it's. Is sort of home on this sort of weird line between his Englishness and their Americans. Yes, yeah. Well, that's a big last question. I guess there's um, 
it's funny that line because it reminds me of the line in the Deer Hunter when um, uh, Robert De Niro is getting fed up of lending stuff to that other guy, and he's and there's and he, so I think he points a gun at him. The guy says, "What's this?" And he says, "This is this." <laughs> Another version of that. Um, God, I hadn't felt any affinity with uh, Della before, but I now realise I do. Um, uh, I guess the the rave thing as well. Well, I mean, I I, I sort of you know. I've, it's quite interesting with you, Morgan, as well. I think one of the things that this thing about the 90s being grey, I mean, another thing is, you know, that was the kind of, uh, you know, that was the the sort of ravey, stroke, ecstasy, clubbing era when actually England became famously the sort of funnest place on earth to come to, didn't it? You know, and all these people before, the, the whole notion of Englishness changed from this rather outdated sort of stiff upper lip, reticent thing to actually the kind of thing about the English people got a reputation for was being the sort of the maddest, the most up for it. And then fashion-wise, clothes, if I remember rightly, became sort of more colourful than they had than they had during the, you know, the rather dark sort of punk era. So I, anyway, that's one. And I remember, you know, those sort of festivals that you'd have, um, you know, they were beautifully colourful and rather, rather sort of glamorous as well. Uh, and then I think going back to the drug thing, I think it was, it's, I'm reminding this now, that ecstasy era, it was quite interesting that the, you know, the alcohol industry were briefly worried because drink sales went down. And then I think, of course, you know, well, the, the ecstasy thing wasn't sustainable, but it really did seem for a brief while to change what England was like. Uh, and then, of course... You know, uh, one of the reasons I think people turned to Coke so much was because the great thing about Coke, you could drink with it. You know, that traditional English pastime, get get drunk and take drugs as well. Whereas the ecstasy thing was more of a this, you know, was more of an either or. Um, I guess, um, yeah, this is the point I'd want to end on, though, um, uh, uh, um, Tom. The I sort of balance that. Um, refusal to uh, to go along with the you know it is what it is thing. I def I compare that with actually the keep the thing that my parents kept telling me. But you know they'd say you know if this happened, well you've just got to accept it, Jeff. It's become a real joke with my parents because I was always just raging against things. Uh, one of the things I raged against was my parents, and when I'm here <laughs> in England, I just rage against the the Soviet-style resignation to things not working properly, you know, and, you know, when, you know, that sort of this thing that goes with it, this English thing that if you apologise, then it's okay. You know, we apologise for the fact this train hasn't moved for 24 hours and you've been stuck on it without a sandwich, and, oh, well, they've said sorry, I accept it then. And, you know, that, uh, but those are the two sort of poles, I think, for me. My parents, you'll just have to accept it, Jeff, if you lose your leg in a accident and then the American thing of not accepting it and changing it. That was Jeff Dyer speaking to Bianca Leggett as part of Colours of Memory, an international conference on the writing of Jeff Dyer. This podcast is part of a series of programmes made about the conference. There is further discussion around his writing at podacademy.org which is also where you will find Jeff treating us to a reading of part of his new novel. Thanks to all the speakers in this podcast, Elizabeth Minkle, Joe Brooker, Shripad Joglikar, and of course, Jeff Dyer. 
And special thanks to Bianca Leggett for her support in putting this podcast together. I'm Joe Barrett, and I produce this programme for Pod Academy with Isabella Grotto. 